The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. Hello again, dear friends. Father Lee here with another podcast. We're shifting gears a bit over the next several weeks to take an in-depth look at the book of First Peter. Martin Luther once wrote, This epistle of St. Peter is also one of the noblest books in the New Testament. It is the genuine and pure gospel. What truer words could have been spoken? Here, St. Peter outlines the work of the gospel in the life of the church, how believers are to move in the world around them, and in the face of suffering and persecution, pours out beautiful images of hope for his congregations. What a noble genuine, pure gospel indeed. At St. Aidan's, we have a particular method for reading scripture based on the historic Christian patterns for reading the Bible. We ask four key questions while we read. What happens? Where is Christ? How should I live? And finally, what is our hope? I have a longer video detailing this method for reading scripture on our YouTube channel. If you're interested, You'll find a link in the description, along with the links to the discussion notes for this episode. In the time of coronavirus, we, like many churches, are unable to gather to read Scripture together. So this meeting is being hosted via Zoom. This poses benefits and complications. So I ask for your patience as we're adjusting to this new method for hosting meetings. And I invite you to sit in on a small group discussion at St. Aidan's as we open up the first epistle of St. Peter. So tonight we are in 1 Peter chapter 4. I've got a very fun uh, translation by N.T. Wright. So I thought I would go ahead and read chapter 4 for us this evening because there are some weird ways that Peter uses Greek, and they are hard to translate, and I feel like N.T. Wright does a really good job of clarifying what it is that he's trying to say. Um, so you guys follow along in the translation that you have, and I'll be reading from uh, N.T. Wright's translation of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says, So then just as the Messiah suffered in the flesh, you too must equip yourselves with the same mental armor. Someone who suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of their mortal life no longer according to human desires, but according to God's will. Pagan ways of life have had quite enough of your time already, and you should put all that behind you for good, all that uncleanness, passion, drunkenness, excessive feasting, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. People are shocked that you don't now join with them in the same wild, reckless behavior, and so they call down curses on you, but they will have to account for it before the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is why, you see, the gospel was preached even to the dead, so that being judged in human fashion in the flesh, 
they might live in God's fashion in the spirit. The end of all things is upon us. You must keep sober then and self-disciplined for your prayers. Above all, keep absolutely firm in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each of you has received a gift, so you should use it for ministry to one another as good stewards of God's many-sided grace. If anyone speaks, they should do so as speaking God's oracles. If anyone ministers, they should do it as in the strength which God grants, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus the Messiah, to whom be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which is coming upon you to test you, as though this were some sort of strange thing that was happening to you. Rather, celebrate. You are sharing the sufferings of the Messiah. Then, when his glory is revealed, you will be able to, you will celebrate with real exuberant joy. If you are abused because of the name of the Messiah, you are blessed by God, because the spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you. None of you, of course, should suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or even as a busybody. But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Rather, give God glory for that name. The time has come, you see, for judgment to begin at God's own household. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous person is scarcely saved, what will the ungodly where will the ungodly and sinner appear? So also those of you who suffer according to God's will should entrust their whole lives to the faithful creator by doing what is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we can sort of divide our reading this evening up into two sections, really. Um, we can, we can read verses 1 through verse 11, and then 12 through the end of the chapter, 12, 12 through 19. That sort of breaks the chapter up nicely. Now, I'm going to suggest also a, a different way of breaking the chapter up, um, but I, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in just a second, okay? So, so the first thing that we'll do is we'll talk about what, what, is, what, what is Peter doing and what is Peter talking about uh, in this first section. So Peter's talking about, well, he's talking about a lot of things. This whole section is going to be a lot about what suffering is and why it happens and what's going on and what is the, the larger meaning behind the, the suffering that we endure. Now, I'm not going to say that he's making a, a you know, a, a philosophical case. For, for theologians, they love to talk about like the, the, the meaning of suffering and all those kinds of things. Peter's not doing that. He's not having that kind of an argument. Uh, he, he wants us to explain, he wants, he wants to explain to us what it is that God is doing in us and through us in the midst of suffering. Not why does God allow suffering, but what is God accomplishing in us as we suffer, as we encounter suffering, okay? It's a different way of looking at the question. So he begins by talking about Christ's suffering, all right? And what does he say? If you're going to outline that first little section there, how would you do it? Love cover, covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, I, here's, here's, here's an interesting thing that I, I, I found in one of the books that I was reading today. All right, there we go. So love covers a multitude of sins. Now, here's what's interesting. 
if you start at verse one and go through verse eight, which is, which is that verse, above all, keep loving one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Those first eight verses are the epistle reading that, that is in our lectionary and I think all of the lectionaries. Maybe not the Orthodox ones. I don't, I'm, I'm not, their, their lectionaries work weird. Um, but in, in all of the lectionaries, this is the reading for Holy Saturday, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. Okay, so obviously one of the reasons is, is that weird thing that happens in verse six, which we can, we can talk about in, in just a minute because, you know, that's confusing. But it's also interesting in, in this idea that love covers a multitude of sins. Why do you think it is important that we as the church remind ourselves that love covers a multitude of sins when we're preparing to celebrate Easter? Why is that the, the Holy Saturday message? I mentioned that because if, if you just wanted to do verse 6, you could, you could adjust that passage. You could end it earlier. Uh, but but it's always been the way that we've always read it as as a, a as a tradition is to read all the way through verse eight because it's important that we hear again that love covers a multitude of sins. So why is that important for us to remember when we think about what it is that Jesus has done? Because Jesus' love forgave, forgives us of our sins. He died on the cross for us because he loves us. Yep, absolutely. So we can understand what it is that Christ is doing and what it is that Christ is accomplishing by understanding that it's not something that he does, uh, that, that he does out of wrath or out of obligation. It's something that he does because it's who he is. It's, it, it's an extension of who he is. And because it's an extension of Jesus, it means that it's an extension of the way that God is, that this is the way that God behaves toward us, that this is the way that God is with us. So let's move on just a little bit and continue sort of outlining this, uh, outlining this passage, okay? So it begins by talking about Christ suffered in the flesh, so you should have the same way of thinking about it. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean if Christ suffered in the flesh, then you should think about that in the same way? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. How do we do that? Suffer, suffered like Christ, you would... Uh, I don't have a passion like he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to embrace the, I mean, it's, it's not even just embracing the, the harm that happens to us in life. It's more, uh, I'm trying to think of the way to describe it well. I like this idea of arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Um, N.T. Wright in that translation talks about is putting, put on the same mental armor. Right? It's not that when you go through this difficulty, it's, it's going to be easier, but you're going to be protected from it. It's not going to be able to harm you in the way that it would harm other people who don't have this, the, the, this hope to defend them against all of the, the suffering that, that encompasses our life. Okay? A lot of the, uh, the commentaries that I read pointed out that he is, it, it's, it's very unlikely that Peter is talking about um, like direct governmental persecution, okay? Um, firstly, because that wasn't really going on at the time that Peter wrote this book. Um, but also when he talks about the way that people are suffering, it has to do with the way that their neighbors are treating them and not the way that the state is treating them. Um, so while obviously it's, it's going to be the case later on and, and it will, you know, for the next 
almost almost 400 years, well, almost 300 years of of the church's story, there will be um, you know various local explosions of persecution, just depending on where people live and what's going on in those contexts. In spite of all of that, probably what he's talking about here is that the way that we relate to our neighbors changes because of our faith in Christ, and because it changes, it means that it changes our relationship uh, with the neighbors that we have. I think it also changes the relationship with fellow believers. So we have a saying in the military called embrace the suck. Mm-hmm. When, you know, you have to go and do hard PT or do something um, that you're suffering physically or emotionally or whatever. Um, so not only does it, you know, help you relate with the people who are overseeing it. So the sergeants or whoever is doing the, the training, mm-hmm. help you relate with the people that are around you that are suffering with you as a community. I think that might apply here. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so he moves on and he talks about like the 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 thing that the, the that your the, your neighbors are inviting you into. Now, this may or may not be the case in your experience. I've never been invited to a, a drinking party or an orgy with my neighbors. Um, maybe you've had a more exciting life than me. I I, I don't know. Um, right, but he talks about this like. Uh, he, he says to them, I don't want you guys to throw yourselves back into, in, in, the, in the ESV, he, he calls it the flood of debauchery, right? That's in verse, what is it? In verse four, the flood of debauchery, which is just, what a word, what a, what a phrase, that's fantastic. But at the beginning of verse four, he says this, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the flood of debauchery. So one of the reasons he uses that word flood, all right, I don't know what you guys, your translation say. Mine says orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Do, do you guys say something there other than orgies? This is in verse. Carousing. What is it? Carousing. Carousing, uh-huh. Does anybody have anything other than carousing? Some of the older ones, like the, the King James and the Dewey Reams and those, they'll, they'll say revelry. So the word that he uses there is a word that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in our context. They used to have processions uh, in, in, the, in, in the world where they lived. And so there would be a particular God's feast, and it was usually a God of some kind of debauchery, either, either, either drunkenness or promiscuity. Or, or gluttony or something. And so the whole neighborhood would turn out and they would have a neighborhood party and they would all just meander through the streets, all drinking at each other's doorsteps. And it would just be this huge gathering. It, it looked a lot like Mardi Gras. So you think about the way that Mardi Gras looks in, I'll, I'll clarify that, the way that Mardi Gras looks on Bourbon Street. Mardi Gras doesn't look that way in, in 95% of the places in the world that celebrate that feast. Uh, but on Bourbon Street, uh, because it has nothing to do with the actual Feast of Mardi Gras and everything to do with a flood of debauchery. Um, <clears throat> so, so like that was, that was, that, that was a, a thing that, that was normal for, for people. And, and so it's really hard for us, you know, you think about medieval Englishmen who are trying to figure out how to translate this word into English. They're like, well, I don't know how to describe that word. Um, but I, I, I got curious and I was like, well, what are they talking about here? Like, why would they translate it in all these different weird ways? And so I typed the word in and, and the word pops up on, on 
the Wikipedia, and you can see all of the artwork from clay pots and all of those things from Greece. And all of those translations are absolutely accurate to what those kinds of parties in the street were like. And so Peter is saying, I don't want you guys going back out there. I, when, when people come to invite you, when they extend hospitality to you, to join them in these revelries, in, in, the, in, in these carousing parties, in these drinking parties, in, in, in all of these things, their, their, their drunkenness and their, their sensuality, and, and all of those things, when they invite you to those things, you're going to have to say no, and it's going to surprise them. The word that he uses in Greek for surprised is, is from the same root as alienated. They're going to feel like you have affronted their honor because you're rejecting their hospitality. And yet what Peter is saying is you're going to have to reject their hospitality. Now, he's going to very quickly explain to us why we have to reject that hospitality, right? Because the gospel has been preached to the dead. So that even so, so that though people have been judged in the flesh, they might be alive in the spirit, because the end of all things is at hand. All right, so let's move on to that part. When you guys read verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What in the world do you think that means? Who's, who's got a thought? You can cheat. You can, you can look at the notes in the bottoms of your study Bibles. It's all right. What's going on here? Why is the gospel preached to the dead? Anybody got an idea? Still in purgatory. I don't know. I don't have a study <laughs> Right? That's one option. It's the Holy Saturday reading, then, because Jesus descends into the dead, mm -hmm. grieve yep. uh, Adam and Eve, and etc. Uh-huh. The pre-Christian dead. Yep. Yeah. What are some other options? The reference to how we're all, we're made alive in Christ, so mm -hmm. meaning, hey, we're dead. Right. It could, be, it could be any kind of proclamation to people whose spirits are dead. Yeah. Uh, another option is that it could be referring to verse 19 in the previous chapter, um, where where there are spirits, he proclaims to spirits who are in prison. Um, that one's less likely because he doesn't describe them as imprisoned. He describes them as dead. Uh, and it's it, Peter doesn't typically jump around on his analogies very often. Um, but it could be. So it could be that it, it could be that he's talking about the gospel was proclaimed to creatures who are bound in darkness, or it could be that the gospel is being proclaimed to uh, the people who have fallen asleep, the, the, the pre-Christian dead, or it could be that it's talking about people who are spiritually dead, or it could be talking about the gospel is proclaimed to and through the people who have already died for the faith. Uh, so it could, it could be the, the, the martyrs have died in their flesh, but are alive in the way that God is alive. It could be any of those. I think the middle two are the best options because he's, of course, talking a lot here about people who have, uh, who, who have spiritual death in them. And he's warning the Christians to, to avoid joining themselves to that kind of idolatry. Um, it's important for us to remember that, that for us, think about when we talk about um, mores in, 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 our, you know, in, in our discussion about reading scripture well, that a lot of times we read these things and we immediately think, 
oh, well, he's making sure that they don't get drunk and that they're not engaging in sexual sin. And it's true that he is telling them to avoid those things, but he specifically is, is listing these. There are lots and lots of lists of sins in Scripture, but the ones that Peter picks out specifically here have to do with idolatry. All of these things have to do with publicly joining your neighbors in church services. Because for us, when we, we don't think about idolatry that way. We don't think idolatry is a thing that happens when there's a block party. But in Peter's world, in Rome, in, in the churches in Asia Minor, that's what idol worship looks like. It looks like everybody getting together and devoting all of the things that they do in the midst of their drunkenness to XYZ made up God who's, you know, got his little bust statue over there in the corner. So it's important for us to remember that what he's saying here is don't join yourselves to idolatry because idolatry is death. And instead, the gospel is being proclaimed over that idolatry, over the, the death that comes through walking away from God's covenant, and instead live as a covenant people. Because the end of all things is at hand. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another. Love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of, of sins. Show hospitality to each other without grumbling. If you have a gift, use it to serve another. That's how we become stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks should speak God's oracles. Whoever serves, serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse 12, he says, P.S. Another chapter and a half. <laughs> that's, that's the way that, that, that these epistles go so often. So, so very often. So what else is he talking about here? What does it mean for us to extend hospitality to each other? What does he mean by that, do you think? Have nicer parties. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> you should have better parties than the naked pagans outside. <laughs> he says that he wants them to be, all the different translations use this word. He wants them to be self-controlled. He wants them to be sober. He wants them to be hospitable. All of those things he sums up saying, love one another earnestly or completely or honestly or fully. Why? Why does he say over and against the parties that are happening outside on your doorstep, here's the kind of life that I want you to live? When we claim to be a Christian and others know it, when we do the right thing, we're, serve, we're, we're bringing praise to God. Exactly. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, exactly. So in, in verse 11, that's exactly what he says. He says, I want you to do these things because they give God glory. And let's see, he says a couple of other things. Um, look at verse 7. He says, I want you guys to, to live this way and behave this way together because of what? Because of your prayers. What do you think it means when he says, I want you to live in this particular way because of your prayers? Go ahead. Oh, he's laughing at me. <laughs> the way the way mine's written is for the purpose of prayer. So it sounds like don't get drunk so you can pray straight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Um, there's a there there there's a book that I read that was written back in the 1800s that was talking about there there's a there's an ancient practice in the Christian church 
of fasting for a period of hours before receiving the Eucharist. And it's become this deeply, deeply spiritualized practice. And there's nothing wrong with the practice. It's really good for us to say, my week begins at the Lord's table. The first time I, I, I end my week on Saturday night with a fast, and I break my fast on Sunday morning when I come to the Lord's table. Now, for us at St. Aidan's, that's hard because the Lord's table happens at noon, and that's a, you know, a long time to be fasting. But the original practice was because there were often vigil services, vigil masses that were held, and people in, in the Roman world had a huge meal at 1 to 3 to 4 in the afternoon. And so these priests were going to these huge parties, getting a little bit tipsy, and then going back into the church at night, and they were, they, they were trying to serve the Eucharist drunk, which if you've ever seen, I, I want you to imagine an Orthodox church service and, and try and a priest trying to get through that if he was at all inebriated, like all of the movements and all of the singing and all of the this way and that way and all the different tunes and everything while drunk, it's not going to happen. And they made a mockery of, of the service. And so the word came from on high from the bishops and they said, you will be fasting for half of the day before you, before you do this. They told them, you guys have to skip that meal. Even if it's a festival day, you have to skip that meal. Um, and so for the same reason, this is, this is exactly what Peter says. I don't want you guys out there, out there drunk because your worship makes, the, because the, the way that we worship changes us. Our worship makes us holy. It makes us different. And so being people who are, who are self-controlled and who are sober-minded and who exhibit hospitality and love each other, who, who speak God's words and do God's actions, to, in, in order to do that, we need to be separated from the kinds of behaviors, the kinds of idolatry that, that seek to intoxicate us and entice us and pull us away from God. Does that mean that we're supposed to not show hospitality to our neighbors or to be cruel or unkind to them? Absolutely not. He's going to say that here in just a second. But what he does say is that the kind of idolatry that happens in the world around us changes us, and it changes us in a way that, that makes it difficult for us to pray. Now, he also says that I want you to do these things, and this was the, the, the verse that we quoted right at the beginning in, in verse 8, because this kind of life does what? He says that love covers up a multitude of sins. When we love each other this way, when we love our neighbors this way, when we love our community this way, we cover up their sins. Our presence as God's people gives salvation to the people who are around us. We become a means of grace in the places where we live. So that's why when he moves on to talk about, don't be surprised when these fiery trials uh, you know, show up in your midst. Don't be surprised when, when the idolaters next door begin calling down curses on you. Don't be shocked about that. Don't be shocked about the way that people treat you. Don't be shocked if they, you know, refuse to refuse to work with you in the marketplace or 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 help you out. Don't be shocked by by the the hardship that you encounter because that's that's that, that's the effect of standing up to idolatry. That's the same thing that happened when Jesus stood up to idolatry. When Jesus confronted the idolatry of of the Jewish people on on the temple grounds, it immediately and precipitously led to his arrest and his murder by, by the state at the time. 
That's what happened when, when Jesus stood up to the idolatry that was surrounding him, because the people then had refused to worship the true God and instead turned his house into a den of thieves. Now, obviously, God was at work, and God was accomplishing what God is going to accomplish in the midst of hurt, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of and out of our wickedness. But the reality is that we're going to suffer because we stand up to the idols, because the idols don't want to lose control of the world that they've held on to for so very long. And sometimes those idols are are spiritual forces of darkness in the world around us, and sometimes those idols are spiritual forces of darkness in our own hearts. Sometimes they're, they're immaterial things in, in the world around us, like, uh, you know, like, like too much food and too much wealth and too much, uh, too much amusement, too much entertainment. All of those things can become idols and they can have that power of pulling us away from God, pulling us out of this place, pulling us away from giving God glory, worshiping well, becoming a means of grace to each other. So he says in verse 12, don't be surprised when this is happening, but instead, verse 13, what does he say? He says, rejoice in suffering. Rejoice when you share in Christ's suffering. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say, when, when things are going badly and when you're hurting, that's good. He doesn't leave it there, does he? He says, rejoice in suffering because what's revealed in suffering. The end of verse 13. God's glory. Yeah, because hardship, hardship is it reveals God's glory. That's exactly right. So he says, if you're insulted, then you're blessed. The insults that you bear are a blessing. The curses that other people call down on you, that's, that's, that's a blessing. But <laughs> it's, there's an important but that he introduces in, in verse 15. He says, what? Not for evil reasons. Right. Right. And this goes back to what, what he said earlier in, in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. <clears throat> that that it is not, uh, it, it's not beneficial to us if we are wicked and then we're, we're, we're punished uh, either by the government or by a larger community for our wickedness and then say, well, you know, that's just the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. Well, no, it's because you're a thief, and so now you have to pay everybody back, and you're poor. Um, that's that that that's not that that that's not because of Jesus. Now you can choose to be changed and transformed by that, but that's not Jesus. So he, he's he's saying don't don't try to you know pretend that your suffering as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a or or a meddler uh, has to do with that. No, he says I want you guys to obey the law. The, the suffering, if, if you suffer because you made bad choices, then, then, that, then, then that's just your own suffering. But he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So he concludes the chapter here by talking about what it looks like for us to glorify God. And how does he describe this? Glorifying God in the midst of suffering. He says that judgment is about to begin in God's household. What does that mean? What does he mean judgment is about to begin? Is it because judgment is going to begin in God's household because his household is held to a higher standard? That could be, yeah. Yeah, that definitely could be. 
thinking of when Peter was living, the Christians were about to become, become more persecuted than ever, I think. I think that could be as well. Could it be related to the statement that um, you will be judged as you judge? Uh-huh. I, I think that that could be part of it as well. What else? What are some other reasons that the judgment is about to begin? Almost like the purification of gold. It's got to be judged or tempered or, you know, heated through, through the fire so it can come out pure. So right. as a during the household. Mm -hmm. I think so. I also was kind of struck by this, this, this phrase that he uses in, at, at the, the end of 17 and then in verse 18, because he says, it begins with us, then what's going to be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what's going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? It made me think of that, that idea of love covering up a multitude of sins. And if our love is not covering up our sins and the sins of our neighbors, then what is God's judgment going to look like? If God's judgment is re revealed against us, then what's going to happen to those, uh, to those around us, those, those who we refuse to give grace? Uh, what, what's the, the larger effect that, that our decision to, to, to not reflect God's presence, God's healing, God's restoration, God's love, God's resurrection power, if we don't reflect that, then what is the effect that that is going to have on our neighbors? Okay. Is there anything in, in that section that we, we haven't really talked about? Any major points there? There were a few things that I noticed, and, and you guys can point them out too, in that, that I, uh, stuff that I put boxes around, um, just because they were, they, there were places where I wanted to make sure that I was careful not to read my own assumptions, uh, my, my own assumptions. One was when he, in verse seven, we talks about the end of things is at hand. And we talked in our, in our study about misreading scripture through Western eyes about the difference between chronos time and kairos time in, in the New Testament, especially. Um, and this idea of the end of all things being at hand, sort of like he, he, he says here that, that, that the judgment is about to, is about to begin, um, that we often interpret that as, as right now. Uh, that, that this means that, that God is doing it right now or in just in the future, and we've got a couple of days left to clean up our act and, and fix all of our mess. Um, when, in fact, it's, it's referring to the work that God is accomplishing right now. The other one that I noticed was, was something I kind of mentioned there at the end, that our choices affect our communities. But I think we kind of talked about that. There's, there's that tendency to think about salvation as a me issue and not a we issue. Um, and and to to assume that whenever whenever Peter is giving directions to the church, that he's giving directions to me in the way that I live my life. But in fact, what he's doing is talking to the churches. He didn't write this letter to, uh, you know, to to Bill in Corinth. Uh, he wrote the letter to the churches throughout this whole area. So he says, this is the way that I want you using that that Greek y'all uh, to talk to people. Are there any other iceberg questions that you guys notice, places that you draw a box around a passage to, um, to spend a little bit of time later looking into it? So let's talk about where we find Christ at work. What is God revealing about God's self in this passage? Where do you see Christ at work? Give me some examples. I noticed in verse 1... This idea of Christ teaching us or demonstrating for us or showing us uh, how, how to endure suffering. 
that was one of the first ones that I that, that I marked down as I was reading. What else? What other places do you see God at work in this passage? Where's God revealing himself to us? By giving each of us a gift that we're able to use to serve others. Mm-hmm. What else? What other things do you see God doing? If we're insulted for the name of Christ, we're blessed. Mm-hmm. In the last verse, he's doing what is right and leading us in that direction. Absolutely. And I like verse six too. So if that's what we see about what God is doing and who God is, then what does that teach us about the life that we're called into? God calling us into now. How should we live? Where are the places that you draw a, a, a dot or a circle next to the passage? I think probably one of the biggest ones or at least the easiest ones to, to grab a hold of is that, that section in, um, this is in verse, what is this, verse 7 through 10, I think. He's got lots of options there for us about what it looks like for us to do that. There's uh, being self-controlled, uh, sober-minded, loving earnestly, hospitality, dreaming, serving. There's all kinds of things that he lists there in that in that section. Well, one commentary I read this week on this on this chapter talked about the t- how we spend our time. Uh-huh. Verse three for years spent enough time in the past. We have so many days on this earth. We you mm. know we're not promised tomorrow. So we need to spend our time serving Christ even when we're persecuted or don't feel like it sometimes. Yeah. Absolutely. Stand before God. He said, what'd you do? What are we going to say? There's a good line about that in Tolkien, isn't there? What what we'll do with the time that we're given. I like that last part, too, in verse 19. That idea of entrusting our souls to God. And that, of course, is especially in in suffering. That idea of, of surrendering ourselves, of giving ourselves over to God, even when we don't like it, even when we don't understand it. And then that brings us to what is our hope? So what is our hope? I think also in verse 19 that that applies to this section because we're entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator. So he's faithful to us. Yeah, it's. I think it's the... The first time that I think in this book, he, I'd have to look at it again. I don't want to misspeak, but I think that might be the first time he uses that word faithful. And I, it almost makes me wonder if he's, if he's calling back to that idea of loving kindness, that steadfastness, especially since he's, he's writing to Jewish enclaves in, in all of these places who, who have converted to Christianity. If he's calling our minds back to that vision of God that we see especially in the in, in the Psalms. The kind of God that we worship is a God that we can trust. Because they're surrounded by stories about untrustworthy things. And we're surrounded by untrustworthy things. And what would it be like if we could just give ourselves to somebody that we trusted? I notice too in verse 13, he talks about when we share in in Christ's sufferings. Uh, that that we will rejoice when his glory is revealed. That line from uh, I've been thinking about it because I was thinking I was thinking about it in my uh, in my my sermon for this week. But that that song, the the table of the king, at the very end of the song, he talks about 
um, you know, it gives sort of the, the doxology for what our worship looks like. And, and the line that he says is, we join in his sufferings, we proclaim Christ will come again. The idea of joining ourselves to him in the midst of suffering, or even because of suffering, it's a very countercultural way, I think, of, of talking about our life. We spend so much of our time trying to avoid suffering rather than embracing hardship. I was reading a John Donne poem about that today while I was reading. I was like, oh, I'm not going to share that poem. That's, that's too, I'll, I'll put it up on the Facebook wall if you want to read it, but John Donne is hard to read. So, What else? What are other places that, that give you hope as you're reading this passage? Verse 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, that's a powerful statement. There's just something, when, when I've read that passage before, I've, I've so often read it in like a, in a personal way where it's, it, it's something that just affects me. But the way that he uses that here, it's about the way that I affect the world around me. I find it to be a radically different way of talking about, um, of talking about service than I'm, I'm used to hearing about witnessing, about proclamation. Other places? The last one I'll write then is from verse 11, where he says that glory and dominion belong to Jesus. And that's an important thing to sort of bring that section to a close as we think about the power of, of, of idols in our lives and in the world around us, um, to, to rest on that hope that at the end of all things, glory and dominion, glory and, and power, glory and lordship belong to Jesus. They're not things that the world or our behavior or the behavior around us can take away, that those things belong to Christ and are being and will be revealed in Christ. All right. Well, let's close in, in a short prayer tonight since we went a little bit over. How about that? Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, Check out anchor.fm forward slash thin places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.